Hello, fellow PD pods. This is Nick Fletcher from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and Emory University, and this is Interview with the PD Pod. I probably say this every episode, but I am really, really excited for this particular episode. Uh, first of all, you get the price of four for one. And uh, this episode has been 10 years in the making. As a little bit of a background, when I first started out in practice, I wanted to sort of build a research enterprise. Uh, but unfortunately, as many young surgeons can attest to, there's not a whole lot of research to do when you've been doing surgery for just a couple of months. But one of the things that I was really fascinated about was what the first year of practice entailed. Um, and I found that in talking with colleagues around the country who I had really just gotten to know, we all had sort of different stories. And so I enlisted one of my co-fellows, Noel Larson, uh, and we partnered with two fellows from uh, Boston Children's and one from CHOP, and uh, we decided to study the first year in practice. And uh, this was a, a really wonderful opportunity to, to collaborate. I think that some of these people are still some of my closest friends. Uh, and it was a fair amount of work. We did uh, over 1,100 procedures combined, and we talked about it seemed like all of them, including the complications that came out of them, and we, you know, what was a complication and what wasn't, and we were all on our board's collection, so it was a reasonably doable project. When I thought about revamping this for the 10-year follow-up study, I realized that my life has gotten a lot more busy. My kids are older, and the prospect of going through, you know, five busy surgeons' schedules and looking at all the complications was was going to be a lot of work. And I thought, well, why don't I use my uh, podcast to uh, sort of have a 10-year reunion. So that's what this episode is about. This is a 10-year reunion with the uh, first-year ortho uh, group. And so I am incredibly blessed to have such a uh, established and uh, really terrific group of, of friends and colleagues to, uh, to share this journey with. Um, uh, I'm going to, uh, to announce them in alphabetic order so nobody gets their feelings hurt. Uh, but Chris Hydorn is a, uh, surgeon at, uh, Prisma clinic in, uh, Columbia, South Carolina. He was a CHOP fellow, uh, in 2010, and he's currently an assistant professor at MUSC and the chair of the pediatric surgery committee. I just realized I was out of alphabetic order, but Mike Glotzbecker uh, is the chief of pediatric ortho at Rainbow Babies. He was a Boston Children's Fellow and went back to practice there uh, for nearly a decade before he left uh, to take the chairmanship job. He's an associate professor at Case Western. Uh, he's very involved with a number of national organizations, such as the uh, Scoliosis Research Society, uh, POSNA, uh, but also the Harm Study Group and the Pediatric Spine Study Group. Ben Shore uh, is, was also a Boston Children's Fellow. Um, he decided to stay on at Boston, or as he'll tell you in the podcast, he talked them into hiring him. He's associate professor. He's become the fellowship director. He's the co-director of CP. He's very involved in a number of national organizations and very uh, uh, involved in the development of the IPOS um, uh, meeting. 
And then finally, Noelle Larson, who we found out as we were coming on to do this, got called away because she was on call. Um, and I was uh, really excited to talk to her again. Really needs no introduction because she's become really a giant in our field. She's the first repeat guest on the podcast. She's also the first of our group to make professorship. So she's professor of orthopedics at Mayo Clinic. Um, she was also the first to change jobs. So the fact that she's a professor um, and she had one less year than the rest of us is, is doubly impressive. Um, she is a spine surgeon, tetherer, tireless researcher, family, uh, or excuse me, a mother of three, and uh, and just one of the smartest and nicest people you'll ever meet. So we uh, were sad that we were unable to have her on the podcast, but she was certainly uh, in our thoughts throughout, especially because she was probably handling some stuff at, uh, at the hospital. But I want to thank all of the guests who made this possible. Um, I'd also like to thank all of you, as always, for listening to all of us talk for, for such extended periods of time. It, it means a lot to me that we've, I've had so much support for it. I also want to thank, as always, Carter Clement and the rest of the podcast team for producing this and making this possible. So thank you. Enjoy this wide-ranging conversation. We tried to focus on all things that go into the first 10 years of practice, but certainly that could go on for a couple of hours. So uh, hopefully this was adequate. And thank you again. Enjoy. I'm going to welcome... My three of the four collaborators from our project, uh, Chris Heidorn, Ben Shore, Michael Otzbecker, and we are uh, unfortunately not going to be able to have Noel. Noel was, uh, was all set up to do this, um, but three of the five of us happened to, man- happened to get on call this weekend, and Noel just got called back into the hospital. So uh, we, will, uh, we'll, we will miss her, but we'll, uh, we'll forge ahead. So um, as I mentioned in the intro, the sort of the rationale for doing this was to follow up where we were at 10 years in. And I think it's been certainly an interesting journey. All the the planning and prepping, I'm sure that we all did and and talking offline that we did to sort of build along the way. Can't really prepare you for the, you know, the twists and turns that happens in the first 10 years of practice, but it's good to see you guys. And I mean, it's a pretty, pretty illustrious group, honestly. So it'll be uh, be fun talking, but um, I wanted to start by uh, sort of going around the room and having you guys talk a little bit for those who you don't know about what your current practice is like um, and sort of the case mix now, as opposed to maybe what it was at the beginning. And, and just as a uh, uh, as an introduction to the paper that we had written for those who haven't read it. Um, if you guys look back, 47% of our cases were trauma in our first year, um, which I don't think that we're probably necessarily doing 47% now. So um, Chris, why don't you start? What's your current practice like? So um, I have a purely pediatric orthopedic practice. Uh, when we did the paper, I was kind of a, basically more of a private type practice that um, still housed the residency program uh, rotation, but we were not part of the um, university. And subsequent to that, um, our group essentially moved into and merged with the university group. To, so now we're inside the university system. So I've switched to, um, I was the one non-academic guy, if you read that paper before, and now I, I am a, an academic guy to some degree. Um, but I do pure peds orthopedics, um, and just pure pediatric orthopedic call. Although I have in a large group, um, there's four of us that do pediatric orthopedics. Uh, when we did the paper, there was just two. Um, so still have a lot of peds ortho call with that. So I still do quite a bit of trauma. I didn't pull my exact numbers, but I would tell you that 47%, I'm had to ballpark and I'd say I'm probably down to maybe a third, 30% or so. Um, we have a couple 
younger peds ortho surgeons actually kind of hand things off now and do a little bit more of an elective practice from that standpoint. Yeah. And, and also for the readers, I'm going to unblind it, but you had the most cases. Uh, I think you got the busiest, fastest uh, out of the group of us, which is, which is sort of interesting. Yeah. When I came in, it was a little bit of an underserved area in a sense that um, a lot of the Pete's ortho stuff was, or cases were being done by adult surgeons just out of need. And so there was a pretty big backlog for when I arrived. So yeah, I was, I was also, it helped the fact that, I don't know if it helped or hurt, but it was basically two of us that did a Pete's ortho call schedule 24, seven, 365 for two years with just two of us. So you can do the math on how many nights and weekends of uh, call cases that also added into that. Um, I actually looked my current, just out of curiosity, I just looked up earlier this today when I was uh, rounding on call, pulled up my numbers real quick. In the last three months, I did 32, 33, and 33 cases. So it kind of gives you an idea per month, pretty yeah. consistent, right around that low 30s for me. And that includes, you know, spines and trauma and everything, just just rough, quick pull of numbers the last quarter. Um, so, Yeah. So it sounds like you've been sort of pretty much status quo the whole time, maintaining high volumes, because you were, I want to say, around 350 cases in the study, and that would put you around 360 for this. So, um, uh, so that's good. How about you, Benny? I know, uh, I know, I know a bit about your practice, but maybe tell the listeners. Yeah. Uh, thanks Nick and the guys for, uh, inviting me. Uh, my name is Ben Shore. I am, um, I kind of took a road a little bit less traveled. Uh, so right now my, I work at Boston children's and, uh, my area subspecialty area of interest is in neuromuscular. I, I did my training in Canada and then I, went and did a fellowship in Australia and then a fellowship in Boston. And along the way I met my wife and she got a job at Harvard and then said she didn't want to leave. So I had to convince them to uh, take me on. And I apologize if you can hear my kids screaming in the background, my daughter just turned six and she's a little bit hopped up on sugar. Um, But uh, anyways, um, so uh, when I started, uh, Mike and I were actually both working at Children's and we were junior attendings and uh, we did a lot of trauma and I kind of wanted to do everything. You know, I think that was kind of uh, the mantra that we were trained as. I had done two years of fellowship and I kind of wanted to do everything but spine. I even think I washed out some spines in those first couple of years. Some Uh, glasses maybe? Yeah, mostly glasses to be honest (laughs) with you. Uh, But um, but then, you know, uh, um, what the, I got hired on to do was neuromuscular. So, my, you know, it's interesting when I think about Chris's cases and my cases, like, you know, I'll do a case that uh, maybe takes the majority of the day and it only comes up as like one case, I guess, but it's eight or nine procedures in that case. And so I think that's some of the nuances of just when you're trying to look at, at what your practice is like and comparing it to other people, it really is hard because we're not all equal. And so, you know, my practice now has evolved to mostly neuromuscular. Um, uh, I do a lot of hip and lower extremity stuff. Um, and I still do trauma. Our group is so big that I still like doing trauma, but uh, I get, as Chris, I think in the same situation, we kind of get boxed out by the younger guys because we want to give them something to do. And I think trauma is something that's, it's great to get practice on uh, and get going with. And so we kind of, at our group, I, I would say we're like one in 16 of us, essentially, from a call pool. So, you know, it's hard to get a lot of trauma these days, um, but I still love doing it. So yeah. hopefully that's a good help. 
And Glotz, you're uh, you're you're talking to me from a different place that I would have uh, expected if we talked a couple of years ago. How about you? Yeah, uh, you know, again, I appreciate you putting this together, and it's good to see you guys. Um, I've sort of come full circle, uh, which is sort of interesting. Uh, you know, when I when we started, I think uh, as as has been pointed out, practice was a lot of trauma because that sort of filled the holes, right? Uh, it takes a while to get your relationships with your pediatricians. Um, so when I was in Boston trying to create a spine practice with some senior well-known spine surgeons, you know, it, it took a while to get sort of the, um, I guess the support or the, to be known in the pediatric uh, or pediatrician sort of community, right? Cause that's the trust that gets those referrals. Um, as I went through my practice in, in the 10 years in Boston, by the time I left, uh, as, as Ben pointed out, you know, a lot of the trauma was starting to go uh, to some other places, you know, to some of the younger, younger folks. Um, and my practice had become such that my elective practice was, you know, probably 80 to 90 percent spine, um, just because I was busy enough with that. The rest of the stuff wasn't filled in. And then uh, uh, about a year and a half or two years ago now, uh, it seems like just yesterday, uh, made a move to Cleveland to Rainbow Babies where I uh, made the decision largely because I could still do spine and, and pediatric orthopedics, but also sort of try to um, help grow a division or, or, or run a division. Um, and what I have found, which is sort of interesting, in addition to I need to balance my sort of administrative stuff a lot more with my clinical stuff is that um, I need to build a practice again. <laughs> so, you know, the pediatricians don't know me. Um, and so I've uh, started, you know, doing a lot more trauma. I'd say my, the past two years, my percentage of trauma has gone back up. Um, and uh, and I'm also doing a lot more general peds that I hadn't done in a while, right? Um, so we don't really have a congenital hand person. So I'm doing trigger thumbs, but, you know, I hadn't done a trigger thumb in, with all the guys in Boston there in 10 years, right? And so I, I've sort of come full circle, which is sort of interesting. Um, and I still, you know, it's, it's funny, it's doing it the second time. I think you, you learn a little bit about how that sort of relationship building goes. And, uh, and it's been, uh, it's been interesting. Yeah. It's interesting, uh, to hear you say that. And I, I was going to ask a follow-up question. I'll start with Ben on this, you know, cause you're, you're talking about a hyper-specialized practice. I remember for the first couple of years, uh, really sort of worrying about, you know, when am I going to feel established? When am I going to get there? When are, when are my volumes going to get to the point where I don't worry that I'm going to be doing cases the next day? And now I'm like, you know, stop it, stop the fire hose. Right. And I, you know, my, I'm scheduled out for a couple of months and things like that. And I'm curious, Ben, uh, as you built your practice, at what point did you really start to feel comfortable? Like you didn't have to worry that, you know, that you were going to stay busy, that you were going to have all your OR days filled and all your clinics filled. It's weird, you know, uh, it's a great question. And I think uh, it's important to recognize, at least for me, that it's not all just about you uh, to keep your days filled. Like you need to have a really good assistant and you have to have a good infrastructure so that, you know, if someone's trying to get to you, that they can get to you and then you can get them scheduled because that's not really your job. Uh, and if, you know, it may seem kind of um, obvious, but like, in full disclosure, lately, I've struggled with having um, helpers to try and get through that second stage. And so the reality is it kind of comes and goes, as Mike has said, in terms of ebb and flow. I think by about five years into practice, I was at a point where I felt like in my area in New England, most people were kind of sending the neuromuscular cases towards me. And then from five to 10 now, what's happened is now 
people are sending neuromuscular cases from around the country and around the world to me, which is even harder to deal with because it's easy enough to kind of see somebody and manage them. I think it becomes so much harder if they're flying in and then you're trying to figure out how to navigate, you know, how long are they staying? How are they going to stay? How are you going to send them home? How are you going to rehab them? So those are some of the things that become a lot harder, but more recently during COVID and stuff, I've struggled not so much to keep the rooms booked so much, but just in, you know, our hospital has limited 72 hour admissions, right. Which can be sometimes hard with larger neuromuscular cases to kind of get them in and get them out. And so we've kind of had to redefine our practice a little bit, done a lot more elective feet just to kind of keep things moving along. And so I think we all kind of reinvent ourselves a little bit. Um, but I think usually like five years is a good time where you kind of get to that point where you're like, okay, I got to turn the faucet off a little bit. I'm now too busy. I don't know if others have experienced similar things. I don't know. How about you, Chris? You, I, again, you, your numbers today look basically like they did 10 years ago uh, in terms of the volume, and you were busy right from the get-go. Uh, but obviously, you probably wanted to build things that you wanted to build. I remember you, did, you were doing a bunch of ACLs. You were doing a bunch of spines. Did you find that there was much of a run-up time and you were busy right away, or did, did you feel comfortable after a couple of years like, okay, this isn't, you know, isn't going to slow down? Yeah, so I would say – here you know we don't we don't have the same like we don't like ben i don't have like 16 partners doing pediatric orthopedics right there's four and there's a two and a half three hour drive till you get to the next one around us so um so we do a little bit kind of of everything still uh to be honest with you if you ask me like could i change or adjust something i I would probably actually prefer to subspecialize a little bit you know, kind of going down the road a little bit. So I, there's certain things I have kind of transitioned away from. Like I, I'm doing a lot less kind of foot and ankle stuff, you know, particularly elective that is, you know. And so I, I've made some of those transitions kind of on my own because um, one of the other guys likes to do that kind of thing, for instance. And so I still do some of the peed sports and and some of the spine. Um, and basically a lot of the deformity kind of work is kind of that transition to that elective side a little bit more. So I kind of select those out from my partners a little bit, if that makes sense. Um, but I, I think Ben had a really good point though, is the, the stress once you get going is not so much um, you filling it up, but it's making sure you have that, that access and that staff. And, and I had a change of care team leaders a couple of years ago and there was, I definitely noticed a difference in my clinic hallways in the sense of who was coming in and where some of those patients were moved between the four of us here, you know, we all work it, but it's just kind of that, that staff side of it is a real thing and kind of getting that word out and the pediatrician side of it, I think is a important thing. And you kind of keep going with it. Like we work by RVUs. So like, there's a little bit of that pressure, like are my hallways going to be full? That being said, not worried that we've been doing fine from that standpoint, but, um, but it can be a stress depending on where you are. Cause I, I mean, imagine in Boston and Cleveland, you have a little more competition than we have here, the university of South Carolina and Columbia. There's not, we don't have competing factors really to work against. Yeah. And, and Glotz, you know, obviously your practice you were talking about has, has transitioned, but you were trying to build what's, I mean, a relatively competitive area up when you're in Boston and not, you're, you're doing it again, but um, you know, you had a lot of big name partners um, who are doing a lot of uh, a lot of good work. Was that a, 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 an issue for you as well? Or did you feel like basically right from the get go, you were seeing a, a pretty good mix of spine cases that you wanted to be seeing? 
Uh, you know, I think it varies. Uh, you know, I think in some ways being somewhere like Boston or where people just come, right. Because it's Boston children's, you know, my clinics were full right away. Right. And, and at that point they didn't necessarily know me from anyone else. Um, and you know, and there was, I think when we started sort of an initial feeling of competition, certainly when there's even, when you're trying to build a spine practice and you have other partners doing spine and you have the least gray hair in the group, um, you know, how, how do you reconcile that? And how do you sort of, you, and I realized very quickly, I, you couldn't get upset when you lost some patients, right? Cause that was going to build over time. And at some point there was an inflection point, uh, you know, where all of a sudden you would start getting second opinions back from some of the other partners. Right. And it's just, if you do the right thing and you sort of build the relationship with the pediatricians at some point that that point occurs, and I don't really know when it happened, but it certainly felt that way somewhere in the middle of that 10 years. It's sort of funny because, again, now I'm in a sort of totally different uh, sort of situation. It's a very competitive market for a different reason, right? And I also have the interests of my entire division, right, as opposed to building just my own practice. Um, and whereas in Boston, we've had, I don't even know, Ben, how many there are attendings there are now, but there's 20-something attendings, right? Um, there's no real other competition outside of Boston Children's, right? Uh, and so... Uh, but Northeast Ohio has, you know, some other good pediatric programs, you know, between Columbus and Akron Children's and Cleveland Clinic and even Cincinnati. And, you know, you go over the lake and you're in some of the programs in Michigan. So geographically, there's a lot of regional competition. Um, so I am not only looking out for myself, but I'm also trying to build my partner's practices as well. Um and so, you know, that's, that's the new challenge for me, I think, from a competition standpoint. Yeah. So, and uh, Mike, what about your clinics now? I mean, uh, are your clinics, uh, I'm sure you got to the point towards the end of your time in Boston where your clinics were like all spine and then occasional follow-up for trauma stuff. And now you're seeing probably in toe and toe walking and apparently trigger thumbs, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, the, you would look at it and, uh, be scoliosis and back pain. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but still the clinic was probably, and you know, part of that's building, not just your, what your referral base is, but also as you build a patient population, especially with kids with chronic conditions, you know, Ben's got it with the neuromuscular, but even scoliosis, not to say it's a chronic condition, but you have kids in braces, you have kids with early onset scoliosis, they're coming back every four to six months. Once you have a cadence of patients coming back, then all of a sudden that sort of fills, fills those spots. Uh, now it's a little different, right? You know, um, I'm the guy with like availability. It's sort of like being the new guy. Uh, so like, you know, um, fractures, trigger thumbs, you name it. Uh, uh, but you know, I always have, I learned this in Boston, you know, what you get someone in the door for a buckle fracture, right? They're going to know someone who has a more complicated problem. And again, that's how you build these things. So, you know, I'm happy to see the uh, fractures. in some ways my clinics are have been a little bit less stressful over the last uh, year or two because it hasn't been quite as complex. Yeah. So Ben, I'm going to ask you because you serve as the fellowship director now. Um, and, and I had asked a couple of people for some questions because I think that this is, uh, this represents a unique forum for people to listen to, but you know, given the preponderance of trauma, given what Mike's going through in Cleveland um, you know, when you're c counseling fellows about choosing a job and, and how important trauma is to building your job, um, you know, with, with the market that's out there right now, you know, I, I tend to find that our fellows say, well, I want to go here and do sports. And I'm like, that's great, but you need to do 
trauma and you need to do trauma well for a little bit of time. How are you counseling your, your fellows? And you have any thoughts on that as people are, are leaving your, your program? Yeah, I think it's a great point. Um, it's something that I think uh, at Children's, we kind of realized maybe like three or four years ago that we were probably a little bit weak in terms of our training because we didn't really want to bug the fellows. Like that was one of the draws. Like, yeah, you're on call, but we like hardly bug you. And then what would happen is the fellows would do most of the year. And then like April, May, they'd kind of have that OGs moment where like, I'm going to start a job now where they want me to do cover the trauma call three or four days a week and I haven't been a supercondular in the last six months. And so they freak out. Um, and so, you know, it's important. And I think uh, we have stressed that to the most recent last three or four years of of trainees, just how much trauma is important. And it's not just, you know, uh, just knowing how to do the cases. I think it's also just knowing how to manage fractures. And I think what happens in all fellowships is, um, you know, the fellows think they need to know the steps of all these really complex procedures. And they kind of lose sight of the fact that like just running fracture clinic is actually really valuable, uh, and actually running it themselves, is really valuable. So we kind of have taken some elements of like what Rady does and have them run their own fracture clinics uh, in the evenings because, you know, the reality is they think they know it all, but then when they're the ones whose name is on the chart, it actually just becomes a little bit more like real life. And so it makes it an easier transition. So, you know, I think it's really important. I think trauma is very important. And so all of the trainees that are coming through, I say, you can have your area that you want, but don't box yourself in. Because if someone told me, you know, when I finished med school or when I finished even orthopedic residency, that this is where I'd be doing this right now in the U.S., I would have said, you're nuts, right? And no one believes that from where I came in my training. I thought I was going to do hand. I actually thought I was going to be a pediatrician. I didn't even think I was going to do ortho. So like, you just never know how life is going to turn out. So you got to keep all your doors open. And trauma is kind of the great equalizer and everyone needs to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Chris, I'm curious because you have a, uh, it sounds like a, as diverse a practice as, as any of us. Um, one of the things that ha- that's changed for me at year 10, uh, for sure is how I prepare for cases and honestly how I prepare for clinic. I mean, you probably remember the beginning of your practice, like sorting through every clinic before and like looking up and saying, uh, you know, I've got, you know, I've got these kids. God, I hope this kid doesn't have a, have a, have a syndrome I've never heard of and, and prepping for that. Um, and then for even simple things, you know, uh, you talked about foot surgery, but like an accessory navicular excision or a, uh, tarsal coalition, something that probably now 10 years in, you don't really even have to think about it. It's sort of second nature. What's your prep, uh, like 10 years into practice? How, how much work are you putting in on, on routine cases and, 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 uh, some of the bigger cases that come in? Yeah, I think um, it's definitely changed. I, you know, when you first start out, I think it's a good thing to always, even cases you think you know how to do really well in the first few months, at least, if not year, you know, kind of going and reviewing those steps from your residency, fellowship, et cetera, and, and kind of getting those solid. But I mean, yeah, for your, you know, straightforward cases, you, I mean, I look at the films, I go through the kind of the history and, and make sure I have all that in my head ahead uh, um, and any imaging studies ahead of time. But for most bread and butter cases, I'm not doing a ton of like research legwork kind of thing. Um, that being said, sometimes you have more complicated cases come through. You know, in fact, even this last week, um, I did a um, revision C1, C2 fusion for unstable Down syndrome kid with cords changes at uh, at that level, and that's not something we do every day. And, and so, 
you know, then I'm going back and really researching again, like I did coming out of fellowship a little bit, just because something we only do, you know, once every couple of years or so, you know, so, so I think you got to look at it depends on your cases. Um, that's probably the biggest thing as far as in clinic, I would say the, um, the syndrome thing, kind of the first thing I thought of when I, the little pearl to that is there's no way you can know every syndrome. Uh, even if you've been 10 years, 20 years, 25, I mean, there's some, occasionally the syndrome will show up where there's only five or six kids in the whole world that have it and they're going to show up. And that mom has read everything about it because it's her kid and, and you may or may not have heard of it. And so whenever that comes, hopefully you have a good staff that's kind of roomed them and, um, it's either in the chart or your, your staff putting them in the room, found out what that syndrome was. And I mean, every once in a while to this day, I, in the middle of clinic, it'll show up and I'll just take a couple minutes real quick just to go search and look up what is that syndrome and what's the orthopedic things that, you know I mean? Like it doesn't happen. It gets less and less often as you practice, but there'll be that one in a, I'm sure Boston children's, they get them maybe a little more than the rest of us, but, but there are these things where only a couple kids or, you know, hand, you know, it's only been described 10 times, you know, and it's just not possible for everyone to know everything. But if you do that, those parents are always very impressed like you've actually heard of it and you can like say something intelligent about it and it goes a, a long, long way. So that's kind of the prep I would say I do at this point. Um, and, and then the other part I prep actually more so than specific patient to patient is really the volume of it. So we, um, my typical clinic volume is 26 patients in a half day. So 52 for a whole day. And it's regularly gets overbooked with work-ins, et cetera. Um, and so it's really managing that when it gets a little disproportionate and they're adding too much into one part of the day or your um, couple of my partners will be out of town. And so I have to cover a little bit more of the add-ins from the ERs and, and all of a sudden you're in an unmanageable thing where it's just going to be miserable for you, your staff and the kids, and you're going to have to rush too fast. People are going to be waiting too long and I worry I'm going to miss something if I have to rush. So it's more managing the population. And so sometimes on those days, Blocking out things a week or two ahead of time when you know you're going to have a bad situation, at least in my case, um, so that I don't get overbooked to the last minute. Or if it is getting overbooked, kind of taking some of the things like a six-month scully recheck and those kind of things and seeing if you can move those back a week or two um, can really help. So it's more that type of management of my clinic than like going patient per patient, I would say. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, it does. And, and uh, you know, I'd, I'd ask the same sort of thing to Mike and Ben because, um, you know, it I, I, my, my prep has definitely changed, but I really like the point about prepping my volume because my guess is like Mike or, and uh, like when you were doing sort of your complex spine or Ben, like if you had 52 neuromuscular patients in clinic, that's like a week, right? And it's, it's funny looking back at our paper because I think our, you know, our average number of clinic patients was sort of mid-20s, 20, mid but that was like you know, in towing and toe walking and, and buckle fractures and things like that. But if you take a busy neuromuscular clinic, or if you take a busy EOS clinic, I mean, I, when I was a fellow with Charlie Johnson, we would see like seven kids all day, but there was pulmonary and there was, you know, uh, neurology and all these other uh, specialties who would, who would work on that. It's a different animal. So it's, I think that, that managing your ability to get through clinic is super critical. I was going to say real quick before you answer that, one of the things at 52, but I still, because I'm in a smaller center, I still have to screen out the, you know, the intower at one years old and the, uh, and all those type. How do you patients. do that? When you say screen out, do you have somebody call them and say, yeah, no, you probably are okay. Or, or do you get them to an NP or. 
Yeah, so I think that's actually one practice change. I guess I didn't mention that earlier. Is I actually do have a PA that sees her own clinic along, like underneath. So that's kind of increases my volume significantly and takes away a lot of those type things. But yeah, um, that being said, in a small town though, like, or smaller area like this, as opposed to where some of y'all are practicing in larger centers, I mean, we still just for pediatrician. Honestly, more than anything, you know, the, the pediatricians want to send them somewhere when they don't believe the pediatrician that's going to outgrow. They want to see the expert. Um, so, yeah, unfortunately, we still, I mean, better or worse, we still see them. And when I say screen out, sometimes it goes to PA. Sometimes I just have to give them the talk of <laughs> just let them grow. Wait a few years. No braces aren't going to be helpful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, did, I was doing that yesterday on a few kids, so. Um, how about you, Ben? I mean, do you, uh, your, pre- your, your cases have gotten infinitely more complex looking at your numbers and the cases you were doing back uh, when we wrote the paper. And again, 52 would probably kill you in clinic. Um, so, so what's your prep like? What's your, you know, the, you said you were getting people flying in and, and that kind of thing. So it's obviously. Yeah, I think it's, um, I think it's a great point because like part of it is like, and this is like good, this is like good tools that we all had kind of just when we were starting out in terms of, you know, staying on time and, and making sure you book whatever you book that you're in time so you don't get your colleagues and the people that you work with upset at you. Um, similarly, if people are coming to see you and they wait three hours, yeah, they may think you're important, but they also get pretty frustrated. And so it's not a good look. And, um, and a lot of the time the clinical staff just don't seem to appreciate or recognize some of those nuances. So I think we all have, you know, like if you want to keep people happy, you have to spend some time looking at your clinic. And I think that's probably where I do the same thing. I don't look to the conditions sometimes, um, often on these patients that come from far away, what we've done is we've created like, um, an intake form that my admin will get them to complete so that I know exactly what their goals are. Uh, and then I make sure like, cause some of the things that will crush you in a clinic is someone comes from far away and then the records don't come or the images don't come. And then it's just a giant cluster, right? So we try really hard not to let that happen. So we have an intake form that's completed by an administrative person and we make sure that all of their images, gate study, whatever is uploaded well ahead of time so that at least it gives me an opportunity to prepare a little bit. So I know at least what the issues are, because you just can't look through 200 uh, pages in that 30 seconds when you're between patients and you jump in in a 15 minute slot for someone who's come from the other side of the country just to see you. Right. So I often will try and book some of those harder patients like between cases in the OR because I know that we have the longest turnover time in the country. And so I take advantage of that. So it doesn't let it bug me. I'll just put in a complex new in between and then I can spend an hour with this family. They come away thinking that was awesome. I come away not getting frustrated with anesthesia for messing around for the last three hours. And in the end of the day, I've done two really good things and I get through my day. So I think depending on where you work, it's just looking at trying to see how you can operationalize things. But Chris has made some really good points points about trying to set yourself up to succeed in terms of looking at your clinic and saying, is this really going to work? And if someone's coming from far away, you should give them the time they deserve. You know, and I, I learned that from watching the guys at Gillette. They would not put those people into a regular clinic slot. They would give them the time they deserve. And I think that if you do that, then they're happy when they leave. And then they go home and say, that was really good. And then more people come to you. Uh, so if you want to cultivate that, you really have to give them the time they need. Yeah, I think that that last point is super critical too. That uh, that you know, if people come to you with complex problems. You need to you know treat it with it in a complex manner. You need to think through all aspects of it. 
So, Mike, you know, you and I obviously have similar practices uh, from a spine standpoint. And I remember the first year sort of make it, being worried that, you know, maybe I, maybe I didn't know how to put pedicle screws in quite as well. But then you get pretty comfortable with that. And, you know, the, the process of putting in a pedicle screw doesn't change a whole lot. But the, the kids who you're putting them in seem, at least for me, to change immensely. Where, you know, at the beginning it was a fair amount of neuromuscular and smaller curves. And then all of a sudden you start seeing, you know, the 120 degree curves or the, the resections and things like that. From a planning standpoint, you know, when you think of how you prepare for spine cases now versus how you did when we started this whole process, what do you think's changed? Uh, you know, I think at the beginning, at, you know, uh, 50 degree curve, T5 to 12, you'd still stress over and really think about it and come up with a big plan. And uh, not so you don't think about it, but it's it's sort of it's obvious what you're going to do, right? You, like the decision making, you're much more comfortable with. So, I, like, I don't spend a lot of time dwelling on that. But clearly, uh, you know which you have a better sense of which cases you need to put additional attention to, right? So, um, but I also think that something that probably I've appreciated more over time is that it's not just the prep of the as you point out, it's not putting the screws in the rods. Right. Cause you're going to figure out some way that I figured out how I do it. Um, but it's how do you, you know, the team around you, I don't think you fully appreciate when you're starting cause you're sort of like a deer in headlights, like you're just trying to get through the case. Right. But you know, how do you prep the people around you to make it all go smoother? Uh, I think is an important component. So whereas yes, on a VCR or a complex hit, I'm going to spend a lot more time looking at the CT or the MRI or things like that. Um, but a routine idiopathic scoliosis, I'm not thinking so much like at the beginning where, where am I going to put the screws, what level I'm going to make, but I send out uh, an email to the scrub techs and nurses and my residents and my NPs and say, this is what I'm thinking. This is why I'm thinking it. Uh, and so I've started to prep more on that aspect to get prepped the people around me. Uh, and I think I do a better job today than I did when I started, because I think uh, as Ben, I think said before, it's not just about you, right? You, you focus on you at the beginning because you, you're sort of more scared, timid, whatever you want to call it. Uh, now I realize that it's about everyone else around me as much. Um, and so I think that's how my, what I have seen as the biggest shift as far as how I get ready for these things. Yeah, I, I, that, that last point is so critical. I think that uh, more, the more I've gotten into my career, I feel like the interoperative things are less of the stress for me. It's the, it's what's going on around you, right? It's, you know, the anesthesiologist who didn't realize sort of what the plan was from a, from a spine standpoint, or the fact that the, the implants that you thought were going to be there weren't there because somebody else sort of overlooked it. And I, and I have also done the same thing probably for about six or seven years. I probably Dave Skaggs and Mike Vitale told, taught you about that just like they did for me. I sent out an email every Sunday. It takes me about an hour to put it all together and think through all the issues that are going to come up. But man, it's saved me probably you know, weeks at a, of, of uh, stress uh, through, the, through the past couple and of I, years. And I think it has really come to light for me because I think, you know, in Boston, as my practice matured, I matured with, you know, it's like growing up with a family, right? So you're like everyone around you sort of got used to how I did it because I started there and then people adapted, right? And it just sort of happened. And then when I went to a new place and realized that now I had certain ways that I did things, right? Because when you come out of fellowship, you're, you're, the way you do things is sort of the way you were taught as a fellow and it takes some time to evolve into maybe some of your own practices. Um, but being that I went straight from fellowship to attending and stayed at the same institution, 
by the time I was eight, nine years in, everyone around me had been around me for eight or nine years. And I probably didn't appreciate as much, you know, how much the machine was oiled, right. And how well it worked because I just lived in it. But then when I went somewhere else, you could see people around me almost nervous about like, like what's the plan? How is, how is this going to go? Because I'm like, uh, you know, it's like being in a totally different place. And so it's, it's even as much as, you know, as you said, Dave and, and Mike and others have taught us the importance of teams and, and communication and checklists and all these things. Um, uh, I, it really was clear to me once I got to uh, a new institution where I had to, you know, I'm no longer just a new guy coming up, like trying to figure out where I am. I do have certain things that I've, you know, habits or patterns or things that no one else around me is aware of. And so how I, uh, get my new team to function, I think, uh, has been really enlightening for me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, you, you, you hit on something or you sort of, I think we're alluding to something that, that I wanted to get into, which is complications. Um, and it's funny cause I've asked a lot of guests on the podcast about how they handle complications. And I think the universal response is poorly. I, I don't think any of us like them. Any, uh, none of us really do well with them, but it's interesting. Uh, you guys, I'm sure all remember the process of sitting around, again, I was sitting around my table looking through our first year case list. And if you look back, I mean, we had a 16% rate of complications, most of which are minor, but there were some major ones. And I think a couple of things stuck out to me uh, in reflecting on that. One was there was a lot of stuff because we were in our boards. There was a lot of stuff that we were probably calling complications then that I may sort of not call a complication now. Um, And that secondly, the major ones at that time, I mean, we were only a year into practice. And I think I was fortunate that none of them were like super major. I mean, I've had, you know, pretty bad complications as I'm sure you all have at this point. And, uh, but even those ones that we considered major were really, really, really devastating. Um, and I, I would, I'd ask, uh, maybe Chris for you, um, you know, being in your practice, how you've sort of evolved in your ability, A, to appreciate what real complications are, as opposed to things that probably initially we thought maybe were complications that weren't. And then how you deal with like, you know, the, the more devastating ones, the more lasting ones. So, um, I, I think you're probably right there. There's, you know, when I did the recertification, the 75 patients we have to do when we do our 10 year research, I, I think I was probably a little less like pull them all in. Like when I was going for my case list for step two, kind of, for instance, um, I think the biggest term I would use is expected outcome. Right. And so the more practice you get, the more cases you see, the more, unfortunately bumps in the road, complications, if you will, major, minor, but some of these things have expected outcomes that you know a certain percentage of patients are going to get X, Y, Z, you know, after a particular procedure. And so I think that's one, I think that's probably why it is. Um, The other thing is, you know, some of the, you know, like a malunion in a six-year-old, like for instance, if you have a 10 degree malunion in your fracture fixation in a six-year-old, well, that was a 10 degree angled fracture in a six-year-old before the surgery, you probably would have never operated on it anyway. You would have just let it remodel. Um, so I, I think that's probably a little bit maybe where some of those complications maybe would um, be parsed out. Hopefully some of us are maybe kind of foresee some of the things beforehand. But I think honestly the biggest way to prevent or have a better outcome or handle them better is to start before the case. You know, setting up the expectations with the family. You know, if you're doing a little bit of a more difficult procedure and you know – you know, um, that, that complications are a part of it or expected outcomes. It's kind of setting that up ahead of time 
So if they don't have it, they think they won. And if they have it, they're like, well, this doctor knew everything about it because he told me it was going to happen before the case. And so learning that over time, I think, and, and evolving and getting better at that, I think is probably one of the, the biggest things I would say that I've worked on. The other thing is I find that most of the people I've had complications with end up being some of my like biggest proponents and best patients. And it's the exact opposite because you feel like inside, I mean, to this day, it like, rips you up you know what i mean you feel horrible because this kid like didn't end up perfect right but if you're just straightforward and honest and like this is what's going on this is what happened this is the next steps you know and here's the plan to get past it you know with your pre-op setting up expectations of there might be big cases i always tell them there's going to be some bump in the road when i do x-fix corrections i always tell them there's going to be 120 percent complication rate it means you're going to have one you might have two but we're going to take care of it and we know that before the case starts. And then after the case, just saying, all right, here's that bump in the road I told you we were going to see. All right. And here's the plan. Here's the next steps. We're going to get you. And just being honest. Don't stick your head in the sand. Um, you know, it's the old thing. Everyone sees your infections before you see your own infection. Right. Um, and you see other people's infections before you and just open your eyes and be honest about it right away and get ahead of it. And, and families really appreciate it. And like I said, if you stick with it, most of my complications are my biggest fans in my patient population afterwards. It's kind of the opposite of sometimes what you expect, but you got to be open. You got to be honest and you got to be right up in front of the families right away. Yeah. And yeah, I think you got to see them regularly. I feel like every time I leave town, that's when my infection shows up. I won't have an infection any other time. How about you, uh, Ben? How do you deal with the guilt that's sort of associated with it? I mean, you're in a big institution you probably show, cases regularly and there's a big m&m and you're sort of it, it's like that everlasting hanging thing over your head because it's not just that you knowing about it it's 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 the guilt uh, associated with uh with others seeing it as well yeah so i think a few things because i know lots of people listen to the podcast so i think as fellows as you're going through uh you know the tendency during your training and during your fellowship year is like to like you know you have this like really nasty case and like maybe you didn't agree with what the attending did and then it goes bad and then the tendency is to kind of not follow through or see that patient or kind of back away. And it's exact opposite, right? So like during your fellowship, you should run to every single complication that happens and like learn and be there and like hang out and help out and not like be like, ah, I, I'm not available to come take that kid back again. Like someone else can help out. Like that's totally the wrong thing to do. Your year of fellowship, you got to run to every complication because that's the only way you're going to learn and see all these things that Chris just dropped these pearls of wisdom on. So that's like the first thing. You know, it's funny. We joke in our M&M because like, like I always put my complications up in M&M and then there's some people who like never do. And so it like... I think if you're just like some random person at our M&M, you think I'm a total hack because like, like I have tons of complications and I, and I take care of hard kids in my first year, my ABOS, like I, um, you know, everyone does their ABOS in their like second year or whatever. And I did my MPH, so I didn't really have a huge case volume. So I pushed it out a year. So then it was like really, truly neuromuscular. And I remember nine of my 10 cases that went to the board had like a pretty significant complication. And I just thought they were going to rip me. And in the end, they were like, they couldn't, you know, they're like, you're doing crazy stuff. Like you don't, you know, of course. Yeah. And they're not bad complications and it's really how you deal with them. Not if you get them, you know, uh, but they're hard complications are hard. And I think, um, 
you know, not only are they hard when you have no control over it, but it's also hard. Like sometimes they're not just complications. It's just like you want to do or execute a case a certain way and you're like all fired up to do it. And it just doesn't always go the way you want it to. And you're like, "Ah, that's kind of like a C, you know, like I wanted to do an A and that's a C. Like it's okay, but like I know I can do better. And like that stuff drives me mental too. And I always used to look to Mike because he was really good at like, being pissed about it like in the moment but then like leaving the hospital and shutting it off or at least it appeared to me like he could do that where I would like perseverate over things and I still do to some degree um and I think it's really hard but I think for all of our well-being you have to find ways to just kind of deal with it and everyone's different so like I know that I'm gonna like mope about a case for like a good 24 to 48 hours and I like I own that 24 to 48 hours and I kind of dive in but then once I hit the 48 hour park I'm like done I got to move on and move on to the next thing. And so everyone's different in terms of their coping strategy. And I don't know if my strategy is the right way. Um, Being active is really helpful. Being able to kind of clear your head, whether it's on the bike, in the water, uh, running, just doing even like hunting. My partner now hunts. He just gets out with his bow and just like knocks down like 50 shots and that like clears his mind. Whatever you do, you just got to find a way to kind of clear it. Um, it's really important because complications are going to happen. It's not about how good you are. It's just, if you do enough cases, stuff's going to happen. Right. So Ben, I got yeah. a question for Ben. So I actually run our M M&M down here as part of my bike chair quality job things. But, um, so I present a ton of mine because of that. Cause I'm like, you know, sometimes you're right. You have folks who seem to have never had a complication in the last five years and I have to fill up the time slot. So I got plenty to unfortunately put in there, but, uh, I, I would get your opinion. So I have found that some of my worst ones I'll show and I've been just beat myself up. I almost find a little cathartic, actually, the presenting an M&M because I don't know. I hear your input since you've had a little bit of that. Um, sorry if you hear that background, the trauma helicopters landing behind my office here. Um, but do you, do you find that like kind of helpful hearing from your partners and things? Because I, I certainly run to my partners and just like commiserate and, and, Totally. You know, I think it depends on the group you work in, right? Like if you have like, so the the reality in our group is it's such a big group, right? If I, I can know if I want a certain answer, I'll go talk to X. If I want another answer and Glotz knows this, he's smiling because he knows exactly. Cause like, if we don't want to do something, we'll go talk to X. If we want to do something, we'll talk to Y. Cause you just know the way your players and your colleagues work. But I think leaning on your colleagues when something doesn't go right is like so huge. I, I have no problem talking about my uh cases in m&m and like i kind of you know i kind of i kind of like it because i kind of let you know you get these suggestions that people drop sometimes which are like you know it's their opinion which is great and sometimes it's just very different than your opinion but it's helpful because they're seeing things from a different way and sometimes you know, you think you got it totally hammered down and you're seeing all sides of the coin and, and then someone says something and it totally kind of gets you where you're like, I never thought of that. That's actually like not a bad point. So yeah, I think that, you know, discussing your cases, sharing with them, it almost helps get them off your chest. You know, I think talking about our complications, whether it's to your partner, uh, to your significant other, just to a buddy, it's really important. Like you can't keep it in. It's just going to kill us. We're all human. Things go wrong. You didn't mean to have something go wrong. It just happens. 
Yeah, and and um, I think Mike, I was going to get your take on it because uh, you know certainly in spine, I think that the outside of you know a, a perioperative mortality paralysis is probably up there with with one of the worst complications. Um, and but it was interesting when I talked to to Lanky on the podcast, you know, he said that a lot of his kids, obviously his kid or his his patients look a lot different than my patients, even my most complex ones, um, but that. You know, his wife talked about some of them having, you know, severe spinal deformities, almost like a form of cancer. Like you can make things better, but you can't always cure it uh, necessarily. And I think that with that, there's also a lot of complications that come with cancer uh, treatment. And, you know, obviously a lot of neurologic injury does get better. And I think that is a little bit of a silver lining if it's a stretch injury. I mean, I've got plenty of cases of kids who've, you know, who've, we've had nothing at the end of, of, um, of the case. And then a month later they're walking into clinic. Um, and I've tried to sort of avoid vascular injuries, um, or, or perioperative hypotension and things like that. But at the end of the day, you're still going to have big complications. I'm curious how you sort of work through those over time. Cause they can be, I mean, the, those will always sort of stick in your clinic. You're never going to get rid of that, you know, that feeling. Yeah. You know, I think the other guys have pointed out a lot of things I think I've found to be important, right? So, uh, friends, mentors, communicating, talking about it, not putting your head in the sand are, are, are really important. Um, me and Ben were fortunate cause we were, you know, had, sort of had each other to talk about this stuff. Um, I was also very fortunate. I had, a lot of senior partners that I really, um, you know, knew that I should enlist them and use them as much as possible. Right. And so finding mentors that you can go to and, and, you know, uh, you know, Dr. Evans would, he, he said that people would call him like from their operating room still like from other institutions and say, Hey, this is happening, you know, um, two, I think, you know, realizing it's going to happen. And also, as has been pointed out, sort of communicating how and when and why that happens with the patients, right? Um, knowing that the, it's a high-risk procedure. I mean, you, you sort of have to realize that you're doing a high-risk procedure and there's a high risk for complications. And if you don't appreciate that, um, I think you're going to get in trouble, right? You, you got to appreciate the fact that it's dangerous at times, right? And it's, and it's not always going to go great. Um, you know, when it doesn't go well, communicating obviously with the family is important uh, and how you do that is important. You know, again, I, I've never had a complicated, I've had bad complications like all of you, you know, neurologic injuries, infections. But uh, again, those families um, are some of my best families, right? Because if you get them through that complication, get to the other side, they're very, usually very fortunate, especially because they had an understanding up front. Um, and, you know, as Ben pointed out, I, I think if you're going to do complicated stuff, you have to find a way to mentally move on to the next case, right? Because I, some things have weighed on me, and, and certainly if something goes bad, it's going to weigh on me. But if you allow that to affect you as you get to your next case, then you are doing that next kid a disservice, right? And, and me and Ben talked about this all the time, because I agree, Ben would perseverate on some of this stuff, and i have to shake him and say, listen, you, you know, like it's okay. You're, you're doing crazy stuff. Right. And, uh, and, um, and I, I think have been able to compartmentalize. That doesn't mean that I'm dismissive of the complications or I don't appreciate it. Uh, but you got to realize that you got to learn from what you've done, learn from the complication, use that to benefit your next patient. But if you're still sort of like, uh, you know, fl flying a jet, you can't get, like Maverick, you can't get, you know, you can't, you gotta be, go back up and, you got to be in your game, right? If you're not, don't have your head on straight and you're doing a very complicated thing the next day, you're going to be in a heck of a lot of trouble. 
Um, and so I just found a way to do it, but I don't think it's easy for everyone to do that. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I wanted to, cause you mentioned sort of, you guys were fortunate as was I to sort of walk into a place where mentorship was everywhere. I'm curious, Chris, you, you talked about your group and you, it was sort of two of you, um, uh, who were, who were going at it, you know, at the beginning, I'm curious how you, when you were looking for a job, because this came up with that, some of the people had, had emailed me about, um, how, you know, how you went about making sure that this guy was going to be a mentor who you could trust when, when, you know, stuff started to hit the fan. Uh, well, so one, I, I guess is in transparency, I, I basically took a job back where I was a resident. So I, I knew pretty well the, um, all the, my attendings as a resident, basically there became my partners include and, and, or some of the ones in the, the private practice. But, but I did have a more senior pediatric orthopedic surgeon here who um, basically kind of was part of the reason I ended up kind of really falling in love with P Dorso to begin with when I was a junior resident. And um, kind of like Ben, I didn't set out to be a pediatric orthopedic surgeon um, from you know, years back, it just kind of evolved that that was the most fun at the time. So I would say the senior partner, so that was a big, huge thing. Um, being able to reach outside and some of those things that helped me out a ton. Um, I, I definitely was one when I was looking for jobs, like there was no way I was going to be at the place where I was the only peds guy by myself. It just wasn't something that appealed to me. That's not to say it's not right for others or places where that is just the situation, but I wanted to have that ability. The the other thing I would do, and I kind of thought about when you were asking uh, Mike about like the um, kind of the neuromuscular kind of complications and things. I mean, I remember um, it's kind of ironic. It brought up all your points. I, I had a spine that had basically lost their quads um, from a hematoma uh, the next day, you know? And so, and of course I had just gone, out of town at the time. So my partner had to take care of it. But the first thing I did was call back to my fellowship director, you know, who did a lot of spines at uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And I was like, this was actually Jack Flynn. I was like, hey, this is what's going on. This was my plan. I mean, because I was just freaked out. You know, it's the first time it happened. I'd just gotten, you know, into practice or whatever. And so I think the whole, you know, knowing all those mentorship from your residency, your fellowship, reaching out to that, having friends that you did fellowship with that you can reach out to. Um, is I think how you can do that if you don't have the big group of 16 people or stay at your fellowship, but essentially I stayed at my residency for what it's worth. So that, that kind of also helped. That's great. Um, can I make uh, a point? Yeah. 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 You know, like, uh, I, just to kind of dovetail on what Chris was saying, like, you don't, you don't need to always have mentors in your own backyard. Like, you know, use the opportunity at meetings to like, uh, reach out to some senior people like the reality is they're not like they may seem kind of daunting if you don't know them and you might be intimidated by like saying hi to them at meetings but like you know most people within peds ortho are pretty normal that's the beauty of our subspecialty and so just like reach out to somebody stop them at a meeting exchange contacts because like when i started with neuromuscular like i had some mentors um at Boston, but the reality was that most of my neuromuscular mentors, I actually reached out to 
from fellowship and just from people that I met across the country and just created this great network of people that I could review cases with or ask for second opinions. And, you know, people are always willing to help out. So you don't have to have someone, you don't have to be like just constrained to your department. I guess that's my point. You know, you can, you can kind of, it's, there's really no borders to the way we can share information now. The way I think of it is every single orthopedic surgeon out there from the president of Posner, the president of the academy down to the first year orthopedic resident. I mean, we've all been through the same steps at the different, you know, so they were all in their first practice. So like the senior guys at the meeting, they were there one time as a few years ago, but they're, I haven't met any of them that have like blown me off from asking a question or wanted to like help. I'll put it that way. And I hope I don't, but I haven't yet. Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, you can always can always reach out. Um, I wanted to to transition now. It's interesting. I, I bet of uh, all the questions that I seem to get the most when I talk with, especially you know, sort of senior residents and fellows, is getting involved in sort of uh, non practice based things. So your extracurriculars, your you know, uh, uh, hospital leadership your research, um, how do I get involved in POSNA and uh, SRS and AACPDM and stuff like that. And so I'm going to ask you guys all individually because you've got sort of different hats that that um, you can talk about and we can chat about it at the end. Um, ben, you know, you've, uh, you've done a lot of work on sort of a national level with IPOS and POSNA. You're very, very involved in the organizations. Can you talk a little bit about the... Um, uh, the, the work that you've done to, to become involved in those and how you sort of, how somebody who's starting out can build themselves through not necessarily the ranks, but just how they can continue to increase the involvement um, and relationship that they have with their organizations. Uh, you know, I think that's a great question. You know, I think Mike and I both were really fortunate. We had this uh, awesome chief and mentor. Uh, you know, Peter Waters was really good at trying to get us promoted or, or at least get us on the table at many of the national kind of groups and institutions. And uh, I think as you're starting out, the first things to do is like look at committee opportunities and hop on them. He basically forced us all to do a committee early on. And it's just a way for people to kind of go name face. I hear that person talking. They sound reasonable. I'm going to go hunt them down at a meeting. Uh, and, you know, you just start doing committees and you just say yes and you jump on a committee and you get some work done. Um, and then, you know, like, you know, with IPOS, it's funny, you know, that's like a pretty unique environment where it's like sometimes a little bit hard to crack into. Um, you know, I just kind of felt like, OK, I got to try and make myself valuable where I didn't really think I was valuable. So like early on, I realized there wasn't really anyone who like organized the swag. So I like just started to become the swag guy. And so I was like, well, at least I could be like that will help me keep myself at the table by like organizing the clothing and like taking that on. So my point is, it's like you got to look at each scenario and say like, OK, where's there a gap and where can I kind of help exploit or kind of get my foot at the table. And once you get your foot at the table, you get an opportunity to do something. Every time you get an opportunity to do something, just crush it. Do a really good job. If you do a really good job, people will ask you to do other things. And then it just then it gets to this point where we're all in right now where we're like, okay, we got to stop saying yes to these things. I got to start giving up things because I'm getting crushed. But at the beginning when you're starting, all you need to do is just get an opportunity and when you get that opportunity, crush it. Really do a good job on it. If you do a good job, Someone's going to come back and hit you up for something else. 
you know. Yeah, Brian Bryden told me that the the thanks for doing well on a committee is more committees, and I think that's a good point. And and you know, I bet we're all uh, at that stage where where we really do have to say no to more things. But I think early on, you know, the three A's and being affable and available and able, I think, are all important. So, um, Chris, you've I think you've had a lot of roles from a leadership standpoint. You talked about your quality role right now. I know that you've uh, sort of chaired up some of the uh, Pete surgery side of things at the hospital. How did you go about getting involved in hospital leadership? So it's kind of similar to what uh, Ben said. So um, when I showed up, there was a little bit of some vacancies for some spots on some of the uh, committees here at the hospital. And so I basically said yes. And then um, one thing leads to another, and all of a sudden you're chair of like three or four things. And um, after a while, it starts to kind of build on itself. But I think that saying yes is definitely the first step. And then um, as you move through those levels, uh, you'll start kind of reaching out and meeting people in the other specialties and doing all these kind of things. And um, then your work kind of starts getting noticed because if you're willing to say yes and do it, especially as a surgeon, and that's one of the big differences on the hospital side. So whenever you do hospital administration, if you look at most hospitals, it's always internal medicine and ER. You don't see a whole lot of surgeons get very high up there. And, and there's a big reason for that. It really comes down to an orthopedic surgeon in general is going to take a pay cut to do that kind of stuff, whereas those guys actually get a little bit of an increase typically. And, and so there's a there's a hole there where they need surgeons, though, to kind of help out. And so if you're willing to do some of that work. And, um, and then the other thing is, for me, it's just really an interest in uh, my, my big thing is I've just always had an interest in kind of a kind of process or path to um, maximize patient outcome and care. So having like basically patient pair, care, uh, pair, patient care pathways to kind of get things through. And so all of a sudden that evolves into quality and all of a sudden you're working with data people and then um, you start putting a couple processes in place and then a vice chair position, you know, somebody's kind of stepping out and you get a new chair stepping up and all of a sudden now you're asked to be the vice chair. And that's kind of how I got to where I'm on the vice chair side and hospital side has mostly been just on committees and things, openings, and then where they want surgical representation. And so from an orthopedic standpoint, it's actually in the hospital side, they're looking usually for surgical folks. So it's an easy place to start. Although like Ben said, the big thing is eventually it does get hard. Because those things are usually the hard side on the hospital, I'll tell you, um, if you get into that side, is those meetings typically are horrible hours for surgeons. All right. They're basically during your OR time and or clinic time. And, and so it's kind of doing the work and kind of then orchestrating some of those meetings, like either early in the morning or, or late in the afternoon. And now you're starting to cut into your family time. And, and that's where it really starts to, to get tough. And so that's the balance that that's kind of where I am now is for the first time in my career, I'm, I'm actually having to say no to things. And it's, it's kind of tough because for so long, and I imagine Ben and Mike can probably speak to you too, Nick, is you've been saying yes to do all these committees to kind of move along. And then all of a sudden you get stretched so thin. It's a new skill to learn to say, I'm stretched a little too thin. Um, and so that's kind of the interesting part where I am, I would say. Yeah, and your mentor, Jack, is like the best at it. I mean, he, he gives a talk on yeah, it. Yeah, there's uh, no way I could, like, I, I've heard him talk about it a million times as a fellow and at meetings and stuff, and I've reached out to him a few times about it, and he is wonderful. I would definitely say one struggle with that. He, he's 
but it's that's uh I have not done it nearly as well. I'm not sure many can. And he's the master. So Mike, so you, you know, uh, I wanted you to talk a little bit about research. You and I uh, partner on um, PSSG and Harm Study Group, and and I mean, you've obviously I think worked when you're at Boston. I'm sure sort of reworking now to create a sort of research enterprise that a can help answer questions that you have, but also allows you to sort of build an academic portfolio and whatnot. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the process of building it, especially since you're sort of probably rebuilding it to some extent, and then also how, you know, how you became involved in those organizations? Because I, I know that our fellows are always really interested. They want to get on uh, PRISM or they want to get involved in, in harms or, or whatnot. And, and how, how did you go about doing that? And, and what thoughts do you have on, on building a, a research machine? Uh, you know, as far as getting involved in the first place, I think that there's... I'll be honest, there's a certain amount of luck and also be making sure that you're paired with the right mentors, right? So as Ben pointed out, uh, Dr. Cash or Dr. Waters, you know, put us in positions to succeed from a spine perspective, you know, John Emmons, uh, Carlin, Hedequist, Resco. I mean, I have these senior partners that were involved in a lot of this stuff, right? And some of them were at a stage of their career where they wanted to start saying no. Uh, and so they loved that the fact that there was a young person who was willing to say yes to everything, right? And so... Um, you know, that, so getting involved in those, and then as Ben pointed out, I think when you got to realize when you've gotten an opportunity and you got to take it, right. So you, you just got to crush it if you, if you're given that opportunity and the problem is you got a lot of stuff going on, you're stressed about boards and you're stressed about cases and all this stuff, but you just got to, you got to put the time in because people in those research machines or these multi-center groups of which you and I are part of, you know, they uh, appreciate finishers. They appreciate people that do hard work and, and it will only build on itself and people want to collaborate with you. Right. And so that, that's, that's, that's how you get involved. Um, and then, you know, I think the other important thing is, is, you know, when you're starting out, I think you have to, you really have to realize that you're going to be the worker bee for some of these projects, right. You're going to do a lot of work and other people are going to get some credit and not to get too caught up in that. Um, and then as, you sort of mature your practice. I'm at the point now where I, I myself and also, you know, coach my partners or other sort of mid career people, you know, it's sort of at the point where you got to start mentoring, right? Um, I shouldn't be the first author on a bunch of papers right now, right? I should be helping med students, research coordinators, uh, residents, fellows write stuff and, and try to guide them. Um, and what you, what I found early in my research was that by just doing a good job, it got me lots of opportunities. Now I realize that actually by giving stuff up and mentoring well, it actually gives me lots of opportunities, right? Because now people want to work with you, right? The, the med students and the residents, they look at PubMed and they see what you're doing, right? And they see who's getting first author papers and things. And so... Uh, it's a little counterintuitive, but I found that that's actually been uh, the thing that's probably made me more successful at this point in my career um, is actually giving things up and guiding people as opposed to just doing. Uh, but you got to do the doing up first uh, uh, when you're first starting out for sure. Yeah, I couldn't agree anymore. Um, well, that's good. I, I know I'm going to be respectful of everybody's time because we're, we're up against it in about 15 minutes. But I wanted to talk about something that was uh, sort of briefly – touched on in the article uh, or in, in the paper, but I, it's, it's certainly really important. And I'm sure that we all, um, any, anybody here 
talking to who's going to be entering practice thinks about it a lot, which is sort of salary structure. And looking back, I think it was uh, Noel who was the one who was basically salaried and the rest of us had some sort of productivity model. And that's changed over time. And I think that my appreciation and what that uh, what that looks like has changed over time. Just uh, as uh, to, to disclose my own sort of initials um, setup, I had a uh, guarantee for my first year, and it was supposed to be for two years, but it was sort of on a year-by-year basis, and it was assured to me that same number will stick, stick, uh, stick in on the second year as well. And then after a year, it had been co-supported uh, through both Children's and Emory, and they both said, well, the other one's doing it, and so we're going to drop our half out. And so all of a sudden I was in a productivity model, um, you know, like 12 months into practice that I had not been expecting. And the hospital hadn't really done the math as to how that was going to play out. And I, I quickly become became very much aware of, of how that comes into play and, and how it factors in. Chris, you're, you've been in a pure productivity model throughout, um, and that's what I went into you know, do you have thoughts on it now? Um, there's obviously, I think, the, some some obvious upside if you get into a productivity model when you're when you're real busy. But I think that there's some downside and some stresses that go on early that I think maybe early on I stressed about a lot more. And you know, I realized after a couple of years was not anything to stress about. But do you have any thoughts for people who are coming out who may be entering a private practice model and how they might you know think about choosing, you know, what what kind of pay structure they, they'd be yeah. best suited for? Yeah, so I, I think that um, I think it's a really hard question to answer quickly because basically everywhere you apply, I'm sure all four of us and Noel the fifth, you know, unfortunately, like you mentioned, she's not here, but if you looked, we're probably just slightly different, even if it's a quote unquote similar model. And so it's at the end of the day, I always tell our residents and stuff as they're looking forward is think about what's going to be the end result. Like, what are you going to make at the end once you take it out? So, um, my current thing um, is we're basically RVU based. We get paid 85% of the previous two quarters RVU uh, average for this quarter. And then I get the other 15%, assuming I stay at a 100% production or whatever to account for that so they don't overpay us. So that's kind of how ours is structured. Um, and then RVU rates can vary. The other thing with RVU, you got to be careful a little bit. And, and not really careful, you just got to look at it a little bit is how do they calculate that? So is somebody now who does that actual sometimes that negotiation with the hospital and via our group now, um, I can tell you there's a lot of little small fine print. Like, do they count bilateral procedures? So in other words, do they recognize modifiers? Do you get to um, on, you know, the, for Ben, right? So you're doing multiple lower extremity procedures, right? Do you get to code and get the RVU value for all of those? Or is there a diminished RVU value? Or do you only get for the first or second one? These are all real questions to ask and to look at in an RVU. So not all, like two guys who are and gals who get exactly 10,000 RVUs in a year, that doesn't mean they did the exact same amount of work. They may have done very, uh, done somewhat different work, you know, between the two systems and maybe even be a thousand RVUs difference or more sometimes. So I think you just got to look and so it almost makes it more stressful, that answer I just gave, right? So they're probably freaked out more now. But what I would say is you just want to look at, make sure it's open books. Like what are the other um, pediatric orthopedic surgeons doing similar work in your institution? What does it look like on their end? Um, what is the overall kind of take home? Where would you expect your practice to be? Like I said, I started out really busy. So for me, I actually was... Um, 
I actually went right to RVU right away because I just came to an underserved area where you guys had to build up a little bit. Um, probably needed to rely on more that that two year thing. So, um, but I, that's how we do it. I, I will say it does give you somewhat some pressure, you know, because you got to like get the RVUs for the money. But one of the biggest things that um, you mentioned before, Jack Flynn was kind of a mentor. He used to always tell us is never be house poor. So never need your paycheck to make your next payments on anything because that takes away a lot of the pressure on all of that too. And so I've always been very careful. Um, I actually budgeted with a uh, financial planner before I started practice on essentially $300,000 per year. And now most of us will hopefully, as you get going in practice, make significantly more than that, but then it's all bonus, right? So, you know, kind of, and, and the other thing in the first year or two is live like a resident for a year or two. Don't keep up with the Joneses. Don't buy the big fancy house like the guy, the total joint surgeon in town who's been in practice for 30 years, lives on the lake or on the beach has, you know what I mean? Start small and, and work up so that you can uh, kind of make it through. But but I, I think the RVU is a fair way to do it. Um, it's not the only way to do it. Uh, there's pure productivity. For, P, for me, I'm like 49% Medicaid, so pure productivity is a little tough, so it's kind of nice to rely on the hospital side. Um, and I would also say argue or, or looking into whether or not you can have a higher RVU rate because you put all your ancillaries into the hospital. So your MRIs, all that stuff goes through. Do you get credit somehow for that? It's another way to kind of help with those uh, negotiations. But Yeah, I think that's that's all really sage advice. It's interesting, you know, uh, Mike and Ben probably had a similar uh, uh experience where like I showed up and I had asked somebody about negotiations I could do at the hospital and the hospital said, listen, here's our contract, take it or leave it. Um, but Ben, when you're counseling fellows, what are you telling them about sort of practice structure and, and compensation and things like that? Yeah, I think it's hard. And I don't know if, to be honest with you, if I'm exactly the right person to answer all of these questions, my experience taking the job at children's was exactly the same as yours. Casper's like, shake my hand. This is the job. Don't go show this contract to a lawyer. You know, I showed it to one of my friends. He's a lawyer in Canada. And they're like, this is the worst contract ever. But in Canada, <laughs> in Canada the rules are a lot different. So um, so I don't know if I'm the, the right person. I think the things that Chris talked about are all really valid. I think what I tell the, the fellows is it sounds kind of corny, but like you really should trust your gut when you go to see a job. Like, and it's hard now in COVID because you often are doing so much virtually, but like you'll have a pretty good sense of how a group works by just walking around the facilities and talking to the people and getting a vibe. That vibe is the way that group works. And like, if you like block that weird feeling that you have in your gut, you're going to be disappointed. And because it doesn't matter how much they pay you. If working sucks, your life sucks. So you have to work in a good place that you like working and can trust your partners and they treat you as a team member. And so those things are really important to me. So I think the finances are important also, and you need to understand the nuances. Um, and it's interesting because a lot of the stuff that I've kind of evolved to, like one of the things during COVID, and this is totally aside, and I know we're coming up on time, but um, you know, we always historically at Children's used to just be single surgeons and just like operate on stuff and like do these multi-level bilateral cases as solo practitioners, which is stupid. Uh, and it was like a little bit old fashioned and a little bit of like machismo. And, and during COVID, just because like ORs decreased, we started to like pair up 
And like from a financial standpoint, if you kind of do a two surgeon and you do a 62 and a 22 modifier, if they're complicated cases, like you're pretty much right where you were at the start. There's not really a huge difference. And the reality is, is you can do more. It's much better for the patient. It's much less stressful. So I think it's important to just kind of explore, as Chris said, just the different options within your environment, just in terms of, you know, how to succeed. Yeah. I think what Ben said was key there, like get that feel because if they're happy, then obviously they're getting paid enough to be happy. You know what I mean? And, and everything else is goes into that too. But I think that's, and then, like I said, the biggest thing though, too, is just open books. If they're willing to show you all the open books to start with, then you know, it's going to be pretty much on the up and up typically. Yeah. I, I, I think that's, that's so true. I've, I've never met a surgeon who has been happy in his group who was underpaid. Um, and so I tell our fellows, like find a, find people you're, you want to work with who are, are excited to go into work and like the hospital because, you know, I think we all, we all make plenty of money. Um, How long I, have the surgeons been there too? Yeah. That, yeah. And, and who's left because there's a, you know, I think that some kids uh, or some, some surgeons will, will leave pretty quickly in, in mass numbers. And I know of a couple of groups like that. And, and I think that's probably a red flag. All right, so we are up. We've got a couple of minutes left, but I, I, this was uh, something that had been asked, uh, requested that I ask of you. Um, I'm curious, what is like a, a sort of uh, a, a relatively quick uh, point, but what what is a practice-related pearl that you've learned through 10 years that you can sort of reflect back on? I know it's like, oh, I wish I'd, I probably should have sent that out to you before, but can does anybody have something that they can sort of, think of that, man, I, I really wish I had known that when I started. And, I, and I'll start out by, by saying that I think, and this goes back a little bit to what we were talking about or earlier with the complications. I think that my emotional, the emotional roller coaster early on uh, looks much more like a big sine wave with a lot of peaks and valleys. And what you realize when you sort of step back to the you know the the ten thousand foot view is that sine wave is very has very few major fluctuations when you look at it and I and looking back at my career I've had unbelievable cases where I thought oh my god I can do anything and I've had awful cases where I thought that I should get out of medicine but if you step back and you look at it I, I really feel as though my you know the uh, support that I've had from my family and from my partners uh, and just sort of my own mental fortitude and 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 whatnot has allowed me to dampen the, the, uh, fluctuations there. Um, and so I, I, I stress that to people. I continue to stress that to myself, but I really didn't appreciate that when I started out, everything hit me really hard, either on the down or the up. Anybody else? I, I can call on you guys, but, uh, then, then I put you on the spot. Glotz, you're leaning forward. You got something? Um, yeah, I guess it would be sort of similar. I, I think, Humility, being humble is really important, right? Like you can, like you said, you can be, uh, think that you're the best surgeon in the world and something bad can happen the next day on a relatively routine case, right? And so just having that perspective, um, and I just learned over time and some of it's from ment from mentors is that you've been pointed out earlier is, you know, communication, importance of team, uh, you know, it's not just about you as Ben pointed out before. I think that as a, you realize and appreciate that over time, um, 
how important everyone that you're working with is uh, to your success, right? And so how you interact with those people and how you uh, engage those people uh, is just incredibly important. Um, and and that's not to say I didn't do it at the beginning or, or I do it better now or I don't know if I do it well or not, but, but I appreciate it for sure. And I think as I've as you start stressing a little bit less about the day-to-day putting the screws in, which you're doing at the beginning, uh, it allows you to sort of reflect on, I think, some of these things that are a little bit maybe more important. Yeah. Chris, I know you got to get running, so I'm going to give you next shot. Yeah, so I would say, one, kind of picking back a little bit off Mike, is the biggest thing is, you know, as a junior resident, it's like the sign of weakness to call the senior resident kind of thing. But when you get out into practice, having that communication and, and mentors or partners or somebody you can run stuff off of, like we've expressed. But the other thing I would say actually is to get out of the hospital, have a hobby, have something not medicine. Um, and, and it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it changes from time to time, but have something not medicine. We're all really smart people with ability to uh, comprehend and do many different things. And so, um, just get out and do something different. It just get your mind away. It clears it off. It helps with the stress. It helps with the complications. It helps with your uh, happiness at work. And and I think most orthopedic surgeons are just too smart to just do one thing. So, yeah, I think that's super helpful. I think I've also heard Jack say put first things first. And I mean, his podcast uh, discussion really pointed out how good of a family man he is. And I think putting, you know, making sure that you have time for your family is going to keep you sane longer. Benny, I got to give you last words on this. What do you got? Um, I'm just, you know, I would just elaborate on what everybody else has said. There's no magic here. Be nice. Top to bottom. The, the cafeteria people, be nice to them. The people that room people in your in your clinic, be nice to them. Respect the OR nurses and everybody in the OR. You know, at the beginning, you focus, and I think we all realize it now. When we start, you just focus on you and getting through your case safely. But the reality is, is that if you're nice to everybody, it all flows so much better. So if you treat people with respect, they will respect you. And that's just a simple game, but that's how it works. Yeah, I agree. Well, listen, guys, this has been uh, awesome. I feel bad that Noelle wasn't here. Uh, props to Noelle. I, I had wanted to ask her some academic questions because she's actually the only of us who's who's made it to full professor, I believe. Um, and so she's also an incredibly accomplished surgeon and, and mother of three kids and, you know, uh, just uh, terrific. Everybody, everybody knows her real well. Um, but, uh, but this has been great. And I think that this serves as a a good stepping stone at the 10 year uh, point. We'll see what happens if we do a 20 year reunion <laughs> in a decade, but, uh, but hopefully you will. So, um, uh, thank you guys. And, uh, and thanks everybody for listening.